Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of A History Hack. I am here with someone who I haven't recorded with for a really long time, but I'm really excited. She is going to take the reins. I'm going to have to do some cat herding. We will be fine. I've got the wonderful Nina with me. And of course, we're talking about the Victorian period. So I'm going to let her run with it and go wild, but I will be herding. Nina, tell us who we got on. Today, we have Jessica Cox. She's an academic and a historian who specializes in 19th century literature and culture. She's, she's authored a number of books, um, one on Charlotte Bronte's book, uh, Shirley. She's written about Victorian and contemporary popular fiction. But today she's here to talk about a different work. It's her latest book, which is called Confinement, The Hidden History of Maternal Bodies in the 19th Century. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you today. I found this particularly intriguing um not just because i'm i'm a you know a, a historian in the 19th century myself but because as you point out early on in the work this is a topic which is incredibly present in the 19th century and in victorian culture and yet at the same time it's one that's just not been researched it's not been written about and it was a topic that was not really discussed during the 19th century. So if I understand correctly, we're in a period when women are being celebrated as the angel on the hearth and their role as mothers is paramount. And yet there are so many things missing from not only our understanding, but even during the period, the understanding of what did it mean to be a mother? How did it affect women physically, mentally, and emotionally? How did you, how did you become you're clearly you're a historian and academic of the 19th century, but what was it that brought this to your attention? Well, my background actually is in English literature. So um, I teach and research Victorian popular fiction, mainly um, the Brontes and sensation fiction and so on. And I really became interested in motherhood in the 19th century after I had my own children. And it really struck me that, you know, motherhood in the Victorian novel, for example, is discussed in such veiled terms. There's a reference to children kind of appearing. Motherhood is women's destiny. Um, women, um, babies appear at the end of the novel, but there's never any reference to pregnancy. There's never any reference to childbirth itself, you know, apart from very, very few exceptions. And particularly I'm thinking of, of the 19th century British novel. I mean, it's slightly different in France, you know. Um, 
And so it struck me that this absence was there. And then the more I looked into it, the more I realised there's actually a much larger kind of absence. So as you say, paradoxically, women are being told motherhood is your destiny. This is what women are supposed to do, have babies, get married and so on. And yet the information, particularly about the physical aspects of pregnancy and childbirth and mothering, are completely absent. And it's not just from the novel, but from much wider public discourses as well so you know from art for example in which you hardly ever see depictions of pregnant women from even from advice literature geared towards mothers you've got this strange sort of um, ambiguity around the physical aspects of pregnancy and childbirth so particularly up until the latter decades of the 19th century advice literature typically would talk about pregnancy to some extent um, and then talk about infant care and somehow managed to completely miss out the bit where you actually have a baby. So even from advice literature, women could learn very little about how babies were born. And you can see that in in um, some of the documentation I came across when I was researching the book, where it was very clear that women um, became pregnant, even had babies without understanding the physical processes of it. Uh, so I became more and more interested. Initially, I was looking into the issue of infant feeding and breastfeeding in particular, and it just kind of grew from there. Um, And it also became apparent then that, in fact, if we look at historical work on the 19th century, it's an absence there as well. You know, there's some work that's been done by some great historians, um, but it's limited. You know, so this this period where you've got this huge interest in what was happening in terms of the Industrial Revolution and population growth and expansion and so forth. At the same time, hardly any interest in the sort of maternal labours behind that population explosion. Partly, I think, because, you know, um, sexism and for a long time, women's history wasn't seen as being particularly interesting. And then I think also because, you know, once you see the sort of rise in interest in women's experiences, there's more of a focus on the extraordinary, perhaps, rather Mm -hmm. than on what is deemed the kind of ordinary, you know, having babies, as though a kind of interest in that maybe reinforces something that feminist historians maybe didn't want necessarily reinforced. So I think to some extent that explains the gap. Um, But it was, yeah, it's really through the book that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of fill that gap as far as possible. One of the things that I found interesting was, um, one of the parts of your book, you 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 do talk about um, because it's challenging to find first person experiences of this, whether it's in document in you know literature or letters or or whatever. But so one of the things you look at is is uh, is the experience of Queen Victoria, who of course the period is named after, famously you know not delighted about being pregnant. Um, and yet being massively uh, procreative and having an incredibly large family. Um, tell us, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about what you discovered about elite women and their relationship to, to being pregnant and, and being mothers. Yeah, um, when I started actually writing the book, I was really keen to kind of foreground women's own experiences in their own words wherever possible, and to also offer a kind of really broad picture that took into account women from all different kinds of backgrounds. But of course, you know, you look at the historical record, it's dominated by largely the aristocracy, you know, those who leave, you know, archives behind and houses behind filled with letters, rather than those who... Um, you know, were moving around a lot, weren't necessarily literate. So, you know, inevitably, I think, despite my best efforts, there is quite a heavy focus on the experiences of women like Queen Victoria, because 
we have so much material about her life, you know, in the form of journals, medical records, um, letters that she wrote to particularly her eldest daughter and so on. So she does feature very heavily and she's a really fascinating woman, I think, in many respects, not I didn't find her a particularly sympathetic character. And as a mother, I didn't find her particularly sympathetic. Mm-hmm. But I could also sort of, you also sympathise with with the position that she was in. You know, she did not enjoy pregnancy. Um, she did not enjoy that physical side of, of being a mother. Um, and yet she, she had nine children. Um, and she's sometimes very sort of scathing about the whole process. She writes to her eldest daughter, uh, after her eldest daughter was recently married to, to basically say how bitter she was bitter and resentful that she'd fallen pregnant with her so soon after she married her father you know she wanted to be able to enjoy her time with Prince Albert and so on um, but as for so many women at the time preventing pregnancy was not straightforward you know it involved knowledge of contraception with lots of women which lots of women didn't have um, and it involved it would in most cases you know it necessitates the husband or the partner agreeing um, to employ methods of contraception. So Queen Victoria ends up with nine children, not really through her own choice. I'm sure she would have um, chosen to, to just produce maybe the heir in the spare had she got any choice in the matter. Um, yeah. But she is a fascinating figure. One of the, the things that's, that always strikes me is her attitude towards uh, feeding her children. So like quite a lot of aristocratic women, she mm-hmm. wouldn't breastfeed herself. She wanted to employ ne- wet nurses. She felt that... Um, Babies should be fed by more animal-like women, she described them. Um, and it wasn't a job for the kind of refined, you know, aristocratic gentlewoman. Right. Um, so she always employs wet nurses to breastfeed her children for her. But of course, if she breastfed herself, she it may have been possible to prevent some of the pregnancies. I mean, it was one of the methods right. that some women were aware of, and they deliberately would feed breastfeed their children up until three or four years old to try and prevent future pregnancies. If you're breastfeeding regularly enough, it can help as a, as a kind of contraceptive aid. So there's a bit of an irony in her refusal Mm. to breastfeed. In fact, it could have kind of aided her in in reducing the number of children she produced. She was, she, she is a, 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 what what I also found fascinating is, is that um, she does in fact link being, being pregnant um, to, not, I think at one point, and you, you quote this to not, not having fun anymore, which I thought was fascinating. And she, she I, is known for being as explicit as one could during that period, and probably because she was, after all, queen, about the fact that she enjoyed sex with, with her husband, that she found that a joyous and wonderful experience. And so some of her resentment was, clear, was clearly linked to the fact that you know, that, that meant that that was much more challenging. Um, and the reason I comment on this is this is, of course, during a period where the idea of female innocence and purity are paramount. So there is this remarkable contradiction, which, which you explore, between women should not know anything about this. They should not have sex. They should not know what sex is. They should not enjoy sex. Yet they should instinctively be amazing mothers. And there's a huge disconnect here. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you, how, uh, how you explore that, how that was part of, part of this book, is looking at that, that incredible paradox and the effect that it has on women? Yeah, absolutely. It's, as you say, I mean, it, it's a complete sort of paradox in terms of women were expected to become wives and mothers. They were not expected to do much else. 
And yet they were also expected to be ignorant, um, particularly when it came to sexual matters. And when I started researching the book, my instinct was that I would find evidence that, you know, this idea that women were kind of sexually innocent and completely ignorant of all of these things um, would be one that's very kind of present in, in public discourses in the fiction of the period, but even in the kind of advice literature and other public discourses. But that if we looked at the personal, you know, if you looked at the diaries and the letters that you would find evidence that there were, you know, communities, women were discussing these things between themselves, you know, that it, it that they, there was a level of awareness that it, it just wasn't deemed appropriate to talk about it. There is some truth in that, but I also came across several letters, diaries and so forth, which actually reinforced the idea that women really were quite ignorant when it came to sexual matters. So, you know, they did not, I mean, this is, isn't true of all women, of course, and it varied uh, from woman to woman. I don't think necessarily in relation to social status, though. Um, you know, but there were, there's evidence that some women did not know how baby how you got pregnant how babies were made some women even when they were pregnant didn't know how babies were born so there's one or two um letters and um bits and pieces i came across which pointed to the fact that women were going into labor without knowing where the baby was going to come from which i can only imagine must have just been horrifically traumatic and um, you know to actually yeah, absolutely terrifying not to have any idea what actually might be happening, except to be told, oh, the baby's coming. Yeah, absolutely. There's one woman who goes into labour with her first child and she's with her mother um, and she says to her mother, well, is it going to come out? Is it going to come out of my uh, of my navel? And her mother says, no, it's it's coming out the same way it went in. And she, it's a shock. You know, it's just I mean, it's, it's I'm sort of laughing about it, but I mean, as, as I say, it must yeah. have been completely traumatic to go through that experience. So, you know, I was quite surprised in a sense that that there was this ignorance. It's not just a kind of trope in the Victorian novel that women don't know anything, but that was, at least for some women, that was a reality that they didn't know about sex. They didn't know about childbirth and pregnancy and, and so forth. Um and it just reinforces, I suppose, the extent to which women were denied knowledge about their own bodies, about what they would do, about what they could do, uh, and therefore denied the knowledge of how to protect themselves to some extent, um, certainly how to prevent themselves from falling pregnant if they didn't want children. Uh, so it really kind of reinforced some of those, um, you know, paradoxes. There is a shift, and you you also explore this, between... Um midwives versus doctors. And of course, the 19th century is the time when medical doctors, air quotes, um, <laughs> which I know our listeners can't see, but there it is, work hard to become treated as professionals. And they are men. There, no question. There are no women doctors until late in the 19th century. So we have this huge amount of knowledge from centuries of women assisting women in terms of being pregnant, helping care for them, um, and particularly during birth and the aftermath of birth. And yet during the 19th century, this professionalization causes midwives essentially to be pushed to one side and rejected, except in very um, certain circumstances. What can you tell us about the impact on, on women during the time? Because one of the things you do explore is the physical cost of being pregnant during this time, and in particular of multiple births on women's bodies. Yeah, the, the tension with 
between midwives and doctors, you know, it sort of begins to emerge in the 18th century in particular, and then it just kind of gets more and more intense. And then, as you say, the midwife becomes really quite a demonised figure in, in the 19th century, in the Victorian period in particular. And we see it in, you know, Charles Dickens in um uh, Mrs. Gamp and so forth. This idea of the drunken, criminal, negligent midwife. That was a very pervasive idea in the 19th century. And, and you find kind of multiple newspaper accounts to support this idea that these women were untrained, they're incapable, you know, they're dangerous, they're putting their patients' lives at risk, they're putting the baby's lives at risk. Uh, but actually, of course, midwifery has been practiced by women for centuries. And many of these women were extremely experienced, although they lacked professional qualifications. Again, you know, they, they had no opportunity to obtain a professional qualification because they were denied access to medical schools and so on. And then they were criticised for not having any qualifications. So it was a real kind of paradox. You know, they're really stuck in the middle of this um increasing attempt by the male medical profession to encroach into the birthing room, really. And of course, the medical men didn't necessarily bring benefits into the birthing room. Medical knowledge, you know, progressed dramatically in the 19th century, as we know. Uh, but there was still huge gaps in medical knowledge, um, you know, um, dangerous procedures which were regularly carried out with little thought for the consequences or little understanding of what the consequences might be. So women were really no safer in the hands of a doctor in the 19th century than they were in the hands of an experienced midwife. Um, but this narrative of of the around the figure of the dangerous negligent midwife has been really pervasive, uh, and and it's been something that women themselves struggled with in the nineteenth century, and they campaigned hard for regulation of midwifery, which would enable them to obtain formal recognition for their experience, uh, as well as um, the right to obtain qualifications around midwifery. Did that answer the question? I'm sorry, I forgot the question halfway through. No, no, that was in, that, no, that was incredibly helpful. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the. Uh, I mean, obviously, our, our our listeners might wish us not to get horrifically graphic, but I think it's important to understand the the physical traumas as well as the emotional traumas to women during this period. Uh, because one of the things that you point out is because of this this paradox of this is woman's role, this is her reason for being, this is her God given job and deviation from that was seen as unnatural at the same time it it is almost a black box you get pregnant you give birth and it's it's assumed that everything is fine and yet it's often not so what can you tell our listeners a little bit about the the impact on women and and what they how they were cared for and how they were not cared for yeah I, i think in many respects progress has been significant you know we look at at, at how most women in the UK give birth today in um, under NHS care with access to medical professionals in sanitary conditions with a low risk of things like maternal mortality and infant mortality if you look at the 19th century it was a very different situation so maternal mortality was high compared to today it was about um, 0.5% so sort of one in every 200 Births would end in the death of the mother. But if I mean, if you're having 10 children, obviously, your chances then increase. Um, Infant mortality was higher still. Stillbirth rate, difficult to estimate, but somewhere between three and six percent. So relatively high as well. Uh, So birth really had the potential to be extremely traumatic, you know, alongside the fact that women would sometimes go into childbirth without understanding what was happening to them. Pain relief was limited. 
certainly until the mid 19th century when they have chloroform introduced into the the birthing room and you know it sparks a huge debate about whether women should actually give birth in pain or whether they should be entitled to to chloroform queen victoria took chloroform for her um the birth of her two youngest children so right. she helped to kind of popularize it but prior to that you know the options in terms of pain relief were very limited maybe a little bit of opium maybe some um spirits alcohol um, but many women had extremely difficult, lengthy, traumatic births with no pain relief. There were few options if if you ran into difficulty during childbirth. C-sections, cesarean sections by and large weren't performed because of the very, very high mortality rate, maternal mortality rate. And because of the risks to the child, not just in childbirth, but for the at least the sort of first five years of life, doctors and midwives would generally always privileged the life of the mother over the life of the child but what that meant in reality was that in situations where the delivery was difficult for whatever reason um destructive operations would be performed to enable the removal of the body of the child and save the life of the mother Um, and they were often very lengthy and traumatic in themselves and obviously you know in terms of the outcome as well so it really had the potential to be hugely traumatic um for women I am always struck by um, whenever uh, I am, I visit, it's going to sound very creepy. Um, I am interested in funereal culture. And of course, anytime you are in a Victorian or late 18th century uh, burial ground, you are going to see men with multiple wives and typically you know, your one's understanding if if a woman dies in her 20s or 30s is typically that it's mortality and childbirth and there is often a child at the same time. Um, and so, yes, I'm always struck by, uh, I, I realize this is, you know, this is, this is, this is anecdotal and not statistically significant, but you, you do see that and you do see um, in some cases there are, there are very, um, you know, poignant remembrances on the part of the spouse and other times there aren't so it's i I find it fascinating to to sort of look at these things and and realize just in that small group yes how traumatic this was for women and and how often um you know they they are permanently ill or they die if you know a week or so later of what one imagines is an infection or blood loss you know and and often followed by the child but yes it's it's hard not to walk through a 19th century um cemetery without remarking and seeing this uh, yeah absolutely absolutely and it was something that women were aware of so for all of the kind of ignorance right. around pregnancy and childbirth there was an awareness of the dangers of childbirth you know and of, of of the potential for for death and and really in a sense there's a kind of sort of specter which haunts certainly the the first sort of half maybe of the 19th century following the death of princess charlotte of wales who was the heir to the throne who gave birth to um, a stillborn infant son who obviously also would have um, become king one day had had he not died. Um, and she died later that night. And right. Victoria owes her position to some extent her life because there's then this kind of race to produce an heir um, right. to the fact that Princess Charlotte of Wales lose, lost her own life. And it, it it was an issue which was particularly with the Queen on the throne um, yes. from 1837, you know, at the forefront of everybody's mind during her first pregnancy, when plans were put in place for what would happen if she died and the child survived, but the child is a baby and so forth to give Albert certain power and so on. So it was something that women were very aware of, um, which 
in some respects, I think, didn't help in terms of the manner in which childbirth could be experienced as traumatic because you had this additional fear of what might happen. And of course, you know, if you had one successful birth, it didn't necessarily mean that the next one would be unproblematic and potential for problems to arise years later as well. I mean, having a large number of children, as many women did, like Queen Victoria, like Catherine Dickens, for example, who had 10 children, could also produce long-term health problems. And I mean, Catherine Dickens uh, died years later of cervical cancer, but one of the risk factors for cervical cancer is multiple births. So there may well have been a link there in terms of sort of excessive childbearing and a disease that, that killed her many years later. You also talk while we're while we're thinking about um, Catherine Dickens, because, of course, um, <laughs> Dickens has been, how shall I put this, outed more recently for being, um, you know, perhaps not the lovely, uh, delightful person that we uh, has been always part of the hagiography, but that um, you talk about her. She has um, a sort of an emotional breakdown or a, a, a psychosis as a result of of giving birth. And that uh, is something that appears to plague her in numerous pregnancies and to to speed her decline emotionally as well as physically. Um, We've talked a great deal about the physical impact, but the mental and emotional impact, um, was that something that was not understood or not, not dealt with also during this period? Certainly not recognized to the extent that it is today. Um, but to some extent, there was this kind of recognition that pregnancy, childbirth, the postnatal period were a time, were times when women were particularly vulnerable in terms of their emotions. It fed into wider ideas and wider discourses around femininity, the idea that women were particularly vulnerable as a consequence of their biological functions, you know, that this was one reason why women were kept out of the professions and out of the workplace and so on. So there was a recognition that women were vulnerable at these times. There was limited treatment for conditions such as postnatal depression or what we would recognize today as postnatal depression, postnatal psychosis, sometimes referred to as peripheral mania. You do find in asylum records, for example, that women were being contained in asylums um, following, you know, um, breakdowns in their mental health after childbirth. One thing that women were, I suppose, subject to or advised to do was to confine themselves, hence the, the title of the book, Confinement. Um, to essentially lock themselves away in the in the two weeks following childbirth, uh, to have very limited company, very limited in um, in the way of anything kind of stimulating, including reading and writing. So one of the interesting things I found is that women were following this advice. Queen Victoria's journals after she has um, after she's given birth each time, there's a two week break, so she's not even writing. She's just lying in a room somewhere recovering from the trauma of giving birth. And in fact, what you find is some evidence that this had a kind of counterproductive effect, that it's such a sort of stultifying thing to deny women any kind of mental stimulation, any kind of physical stimulation, you know, to keep them confined in a single room, sometimes in a bed for this period could have quite the opposite effect. And there's some evidence that Queen Victoria suffered from periods of postnatal depression, but she always writes with, you know, a great deal of relief on the day that she's finally allowed outside of the house following these periods of confinement. Yeah, confinement itself is such a fascinating word. Um, I did the incredibly nerdy thing and went to the OED to see when it becomes a term associated with giving birth, with being pregnant and giving birth. And what's fascinating is really through the 16th century, it refers specifically to being imprisoned, you know, 
Um, and yet somewhere in the 18th century, it starts to get this other meaning where it, it as you explore, um, and hence the title of, of, of your new book, it means that period where you are confined uh, after childbirth, but also that it, it becomes kind of a, a, it becomes a term which refers specifically to the final stages of pregnancy and to giving birth, mm. which is fascinating. You know, she, well, she's experiencing her confinement and things like that. And I find that fascinating because it is emblematic, really, of how women are treated during this period, which, of course, is one of the points that you make so eloquently. Uh, in in yep. your, tell us more about that that term and how it where it popped up and and how you saw it used. I mean, it's a fascinating word, so I'd love to hear more. Yeah, it. it really is, as you say. And I mean, it, it it's interesting to me partly because, as you say, when you look at the sort of history of the word and the way it's used in the past to refer specifically to imprisonment, it's almost as though they're not even trying to hide the fact that you know women are are really right. being constrained by maternity in the nineteenth right. century. Um, you know, it's it's kind of right there. This you know, women are being confined um, to give birth and 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 so forth. So, I mean, obviously, often in nineteenth century discourses, it's treated in a very kind of positive way. Well, it, you know, it's a good thing for women to rest and to not have company and to not see anyone. You know, it's all it's all about how you spin it a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but it really, you know, hence the title of the book speaks to, as you say, those restraints that were pay- placed upon women um, in relation to maternity, but obviously in relation to so many other things as well. But it's also one of those terms which is kind of acceptable because it's it doesn't have the sort of specific connotations or allusions to the physical body. So therefore, you can use the term confinement without having to say somebody's pregnant, you know, and, and I talk a little bit in the book about the terminology around pregnancy, as well as sort of other bodily functions, and this tendency to really kind of avoid any explicit reference, which, to some extent, made the research quite difficult, you know, so I'd be reading about women being unwell, and it would, it would take me a while to click, oh, they mean pregnant, you know, <laughs> okay, so, you know, because it's described in in terms of illness, rather than just rather than direct reference to the fact that that someone's pregnant so it it serves that kind of euphemistic purpose as well i think the word confinement now because at the at the beginning of our of 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 our chat here today one of the things you talked about is is the challenge of finding information for so many reasons but in particular if you it, it was easy to find information about the elites because they tend to be literate and they leave a written record you do write uh, extensively as as much as you were able in terms of the things that you could find about how different uh, working class women's experience was, um, not just in terms of where they were giving birth, how they were giving birth, but also this um, the linking, of course, of not being married and being pregnant and the impact on on women during this period, because this was, of course, very common, uh, you know, women became pregnant uh, without the benefit of marriage, as you said, but also, you know, the undercurrent, of course, is uh, from abuse, from being raped, from any, you know, from being a maid in a house and, you know, uh, being forced upon, as the Victorians would say. Tell us a little bit about what you did learn about working class women and being pregnant and the impact on their lives. 
Yeah, as you say, and as we were talking about earlier, it's it's difficult to some extent to sort of um, find the same level of detail, certainly from their own perspective. But there are there, there's some really amazing sources which I found, uh, um, uh, you know, which talk about things from women's perspectives um, in particular, you know, and then you have newspaper reports, of course, commenting on particular cases, especially when there's been some maybe suicide or infanticide involved right. as a consequence often of pregnancy outside of marriage um, and the impact that that had on women's lives. Um, so it was a challenge, but I, I really did try to kind of bring forward their stories as well and their experiences. And there are obvious implications, you know, there's obvious consequences Um in terms of sort of social status and as you say particularly unmarried motherhood um and so there was a lot of very tragic stories there as well um wealth and social status didn't protect against all of the risks associated with maternity um okay. but it did of course offer some protection um and for many women who were in very vulnerable positions so working for example as domestic servants where you're really in a, a vulnerable position where you're liable to abuse from from the family that you're working for or from um, fellow servants um, who then had to deal with the consequences of the pregnancy with no state support, um, mm. with the reputational damage which came with pregnancy outside of marriage, regardless of how it happened. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of very tragic stories about how women dealt with unwanted pregnancies yes. within marriage as well as outside of marriage at a time when you know, they couldn't necessarily protect themselves from sexual abuse when they didn't necessarily have the knowledge to prevent themselves from getting pregnant and when abortion was criminalised as well. So that um, was also a difficult option, although abortion was widely practised throughout the 19th century as a, as a means of dealing with unwanted pregnancies, as you'd imagine. Yes, yes. Um, I was thinking also about the the advent of, quote, lying in hospitals, um, which becomes a thing to ostensibly provide better services um, for for expected mothers. But there are constraints on there on who can be admitted. And there's some question as to whether or not actually giving birth in a lying in a hospital is easier and better for the mother and child. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the lying in hospitals first begin to um, crop up in the 18th century, late 18th century, and then you've got a number throughout um, uh, Britain in the 19th century. Um, And as you say, ostensibly, they're providing a service for poor women, but almost exclusively for poor married women. So they're not an option for those women who, for whatever reason, found themselves pregnant outside of marriage. Their option would be the streets or the workhouse, assuming, um, you know, they didn't have a home. So much more limited. Um, So the like, in order to access the lying in hospitals, you had to be respectable. And this was something that was investigated quite thoroughly by the charitable organisations that were running these hospitals. So it wasn't something where you could just turn up and say, no, I'm definitely married, you know, show them a ring on your finger and they'll let you through the door. Uh, You would have to produce marriage certificates. You would have to discuss your husband's occupation. Sometimes there would be further investigations uh, by those who ran these organisations into the character of women. And if they weren't found to be satisfactory, then they could be denied access to these places. So, you know, they were charitable perhaps in a a rather kind of loose sense of the word, in that they were also very judgy in terms of who they let in and who they didn't. Uh, But as you say, they were not necessarily always safe places for women to give birth. Um, They might receive um, varying levels of medical care, although often you would have very well-known doctors attached to these institutions as part of the kind of philanthropic work that they did. 
but lying in hospitals in particular offered the possibility for infection to spread relatively easily. Exactly. So, you know, if you're giving birth at home, as most women did, then you have one birthing woman um, who's maybe being attended by a medical man or a midwife. If you're in a lying in hospital, you potentially have a doctor or a midwife moving between multiple women and potentially spreading infection as he goes. Because, of course, you know, up until the uh, latter decades of the century, there's limited understanding about the spread of infection. So limited sort of hygiene practices in place to prevent it. Absolutely. And of course, you know, just anything else that anyone might actually have, because if you are a working class person, um, you know, you are typically not necessarily living in the most salubrious conditions. Many working pl- class people were, um, but there were many who were who were not. And the poorer you were, the less likely you were to have housing that was of any standard at all, access to clean water. So in addition to being pregnant, you might well have something else. And despite the idea that clean air and ventilation would prevent Often these places were not well ventilated and they were not clean. And so you, you put, as you explore, you know, you put yourself in danger by being in a ward of, you know, lots of beds in a big ward with a bunch of pregnant, pregnant women, um, as well as the dangers inherent in, um, you know, a, a lack of understanding of how infections occur. And, you know, the fact that you could, you, that the physicians, um, you know, for such a long period of time were the principal vector in so many infections and deaths among women because they were sure that they knew what was causing it and they simply didn't wash their hands. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was the miasma theory, which was really popular, obviously, about the spread of infection and how and how disease was spread. But right. the debates around the use of hygiene practices, I mean, they're fascinating, but also completely horrifying. So when initially there's some research which suggests that doctors may be spreading infection by moving from patient to patient without washing their hands, there's a reaction, a kind of, you know, um, horrified reaction from the medical profession saying, no, it's not us. It's absolutely not us. And it takes them a while, even once they have this, even once they're being told we have evidence, you know, that, that infection has been spread through medical attendance. Um, there's this resistance to accept it and to to uh, to begin uh, washing hands and so forth. And the debates around it in some of the medical journals are really fascinating. There's there's one doctor who concedes that he should probably not perform postmortems and then perform deliver a child without washing his hands. And he no, talks no. about having some material from the postmortem in oh, his pocket, oh. which is just <laughs> baffling. You know, so many questions um and it, so he says well yeah and eventually they they agree okay we probably shouldn't move from dead bodies to pregnant women but okay. it takes them even longer to say actually we should wash our hands in between visiting each um pregnant woman as well i'm sorry that's the rain it's making a horrible noise no it's quite all right one one thinks now too of uh you know just to just to go slightly off piece but um, as women, so many of us have been on the receiving end of interactions with physicians and other healthcare professionals where our best interests are not necessarily the first thing that, that come to mind. And it is, I'm always uh, horrified as a scholar um, when I read accounts like that, you know, where, where the 
it's not always men, but but this is a patriarchal, a highly patriarchal culture, and of course that's reinforced by you know by a, a huge commitment um, to capitalism. You know, capitalist model survives because the patriarchal model serves it. Um, but that that you you don't many times you get a sense from when you read about this particular topic at how callous um the healthcare professionals are about the women under their care well you know they're just women and they're like children and you know they should do what they're told and they're lesser beings and you know god says they're lesser beings you know and so when you juxtapose that with the number of women who die or who are permanently damaged it is it's it's very um i think rage making might not be too strong a word how was it how was it for you to um uh to look at this topic as a 21st century woman, um, you know, knowing that things have improved in many cases, but not depending upon where you are, the class that one is the access that you, that you have. Um, How did it, did it affect your, your perspective of um, uh, maternity and motherhood in, in our, our, our current time? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when I started researching the book, my sense was I was going to be writing about a very, very different time, you know, that the parallels maybe were going to be few and far between. And, you know, thankfully, in relation to certain issues, they are. Um, but, you know, every now and then I'd come across something and you'd think, wow, that, you know, have we progressed? You know, have we progressed enough? Certainly. So, I mean, particularly in relation, I suppose, to some of the wider issues around kind of silences, around Mm. things like infertility and miscarriage. But of course, you know, while I was writing the book and writing about uh, women's lack of access to legal abortion in 19th century Britain, Rowan Wade was being, you know, rowed back in um, America. So that really kind of brought to the fore the fact that our reproductive rights in the 21st century are perhaps not as secure as we would like to think that they are. Um, you know, and in the UK, obviously, the situation is slightly different. But even so, with the vote in Northern Ireland, you had, a, you know, a number of MPs in Westminster voting against legalising abortion. So, you know, the, the, all of those issues kind of yeah. brought to the fore through the research for this book. Um, and then issues, you know, thankfully now, I think quite rare cases of poor treatment in maternity hospitals but there have been cases recently where there's been investigations into poor levels of care so we've made progress but it's it's clear that that progress is not necessarily all that it should have been to date and also that it's not we're not necessarily secure you know that that we need to keep kind of having the conversations and reinforcing um, women's rights when it comes to maternity to choose um, you know and and to consent and, and so forth. So, yeah, a lot of kind of uncomfortable parallels as well as those moments of, thank God, we've we've moved away from that practice. Which which I find make this a, an extremely important book and and one that I am looking forward very much to getting to read the whole thing. Um, and uh, uh, not only in terms of its relevance to current to 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 current life and what what can we learn about what's happening now from 
what was happening in the 19th century. But also, I, I, I confess from my nerdy historian perspective, um, is any time we can learn more about, uh, about the lives of women during the 19th century, uh, it's still an area that needs exploration. It's still an area that needs more, more good work uh, and, and more sort of investigating and, and publishing. So, well, this was fantastic. Thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm looking Thank forward you, so much to reading to reading your book, Confinement. And um, Elena, I know we uh, there are opportunities to purchase this um, through History Hack. If you want to, uh, if you want to to talk more about that, make sure our listeners can get to this amazing, wonderful book. So basically, check out our bookshop. Do not go to Amazon under any circumstances. We don't need to give no, them no, any no. more money. So head to our bookshop. The link is there in, in the description and make sure you grab yourself a copy. Jess, can you just remind us one more time the name, the full name of your book? Yes, I can. It's Confinement, The Hidden History of Maternal Bodies in 19th Century Britain. Perfect. Head to our bookshop, grab yourself a copy. Nina didn't have to do much herding, <laughs> had a great time. And Jess, so it's, been, it's been great to have you on. Thank you so much. Jess, it has. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And thank you again for being on History Hack. This is a great conversation and I'm, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are going to find it fascinating and perhaps go away with, with so many questions that they will rush right in and get a book because I know I'm, I'm planning on buying a copy because I only got a chance to read bits of it and it's really, really, really good. Thank you. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.